Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Two, Street Candles. Today's installment, Chapter One. The warm summer winds don't blow, and this place you call home is not ours. For outside, the sun plays on crystal where we are of the earth, of Barlow. The machines own us body and soul. Oh no, that will never stand. From far below we rise up, and their shame will light the skies. The interview had gone well. I was a little worried because all I'd had to wear on short notice was a rumpled flight suit and a pair of cheap soft shoes, but they weren't looking at my feet. My CV was impressive, even if I say so myself, and I could at least act like a professional when there was a need. Oasis hadn't seemed so bad as colony stations went, better than some I'd been to, even though the crime rate was way up, but like all such places, it was expensive. My total assets were limited to a few bags of personal effects and the severance from my last job. This would change when a ship with fresh data from out Contis Way pulled in. That would be in a day or two or in a week or two. The difference was critical to my wallet and survival. I had a fair amount of savings, but lag time between system contacts is the bane of everyone. Data moved no faster than the ships that carried it, and it only traveled where and when they did. A headhunter had succeeded in snatching me up for a long-term training gig three months before on Tantra, way over in corporate territory. I'd made all the preparations to break my contract with the Reform Mormonites who ran the ship I was signed to at the time so I could work on planet for a while. I'd never lived under a sky before, and it sounded like a real change of pace. The preparations for this were quite involved, including switching my floating accounts to a local banking institution, but the gig fell through at the very last minute and I decided to stay with the ship. Well, it turned out that restoring my financial details was as time-consuming as changing them in the first place, and we had to leave the system before I could get it all straightened out. That left me with very light pockets. In an effort to curb stopover vice among crew members on leave, they would only pay a small percentage of your wages and hard credit on that ship. The bulk of it went into your banking and investment accounts for long-term growth, and mine were still locked up on Tantra. The whole thing was a non-event, but one that had hit me hard. I was parked on Oasis with an increasingly desperate eye on all the new ships arriving in system, very impatient for a more current data load. We had been on a direct run into Ain space, well ahead of any data from the ports in our wake, and now the ship was gone again while I was still here, worried about the future. 
Oasis represented a gamble. As a way station in several major trade routes, it was a nexus of information in this area of space. Tantra updates would arrive without any doubt, but the waiting game was awful. This unease set in especially hard whenever I bought a sandwich or drink over on Tomain Lane where all the cheaper automats were located. If a bag of greasy chip chunks set me back half a shift's typical pay, then it seemed certain I had to find a new job fast and just let the data creak along at its own pace. So, I scoured the boards and hit the union offices. Shipboard weapons technologists were not exactly ubiquitous. This might make you think there was a great demand for them. Indeed, some outfits wanted trained, experienced gunners, especially the larger company fleets. But sadly, most of the smaller operators just on-the-jobbed somebody already aboard, adding ship defense to their long list of other duties. A professional like myself could easily argue that a vessel got what it paid for, but I seemed to come across as snobby and desperate to people, so I stopped doing that after a while. Eight days of biting my nails and watching the grid for new data dumps to the local nets. I stayed in my cramped rental cube most of the time and just eyed the stream on my wrist comp and retinal displays. There wasn't much more to do without money anyway. Station violence was on the rise, with a bloody tavern shootout somewhere down on the lower decks locking up local headlines for days, hour after hour of shocking vid, juicy sound bites, and stern statements from the local badges. Residents were worried, investigators were grim, and outlanders like me, with problems of their own, were bored. I was doing laundry down the street when my wrist comp buzzed and my retinals flashed to alert me to an opening that was just posted. Details, as always, were sketchy, but it seemed like it was up my alley, so I called right there and then and got an invite. The ship's owners slash officers were discussing the gunnery issue over a working lunch. Could I pop by right now for a quick interview? Um, yeah. I waited for my underwear to finish, then dumped it off at the cube, combed my hair, and found an elevator. I thought a couple creeps who got on at the next stop were going to jump me, but they were just tired working guys, and I realized I'd been watching too much of the news for my own good. The offs were gathered at a cheap bistro called Le Vivier or something, but it was certainly better than any place I'd been patronizing here, so I didn't fault them for the choice. The captain was a tall, dark woman in her early 60s named Carmichael Maynard, Carmi by her fellow officers there at the table, and as I later learned, by the rest of the crew. She had long, graying dreadlocks tied strikingly but sensibly high on her head, and sharp brown eyes that seemed friendly but assessing. She introed the two others, Paz Elareda, chief pilot, a rail-thin fellow with light brown hair who could have been anywhere between 25 and 50, and Gasto Bin Roggenston, chief engineer, squat, paunchy, and in his 50s, he had wild black hair with a beard to match, streaked silver here and there, along with a thick, low-speak accent out of noble space, as it turned out. Ejac de Santos, I said with a nod. Pleasure to meet you all. Likewise, Carmi said for the others, who likewise nodded and muttered greetings. They didn't seem cowed or even especially deferential to her. Ailereta, for one, didn't say another word the whole interview, surfing the local network with a digital ring and mirrored display glasses. He might have been doing a background check on me, or he might have been shopping for souvenirs. Ben Roggenston was quiet, too, but it was clear he followed the whole conversation closely. His small, dark eyes peeked out from under a ledge-like brow with tangled black and gray foliage. 
It would have been easy for him to look severe, but he kept on a neutral face and let the captain do all the talking. Before anybody asked, I touched the ident they had out on the table. This way they could match my DNA and the capillary pattern of my hand to both the identifying information referenced by my posted resume and an independent lookup of my registered profile in the Union database aboard station. That may have seemed too eager, but I was never one to play interview mind games. No red lights appeared, I guess, because we kept talking. We were a little surprised and pleased to see that a ship defense specialist with your qualifications was looking for a new contract, Mr. DeSantos. Yeah, it's a lucky convergence out here, I replied, though I've been watching the listings for about a week now. My last ship, Temple Hill, was heading back to its home port and church space for a major overhaul. Those of us from elsewhere were allowed a contract release. Can I ask the name of your ship? We're the co-owners and officers of Griselda, Berth 4J. We need a gunner, and we leave tonight. Wow. Okay, um, I can check the public registry for specifics when we're done here, but can you give me a quick rundown? Sure. It's a modified Pelican-class route trader. Standard crew is 12, but we tend to double up on other duties. If hired, you would make us 10, which we count as normal. We have just over 40,000 cubic meters of compartmentalized cargo space and a full load at the moment of non-perishables on spec, the last of which should be unloading even as we speak. Our safe freight mass and accelerations are not to standard Pelican specifications. We treat those details as a trade secret, so you'll have to sign an NDA if you come aboard. We got in from Tyree about 80 hours ago, and we're currently on a chartered cruise to Barlow, one stop over in Choral System. We have five passengers, and they're all awake. No cold passages as per our charter contract. That's a dozen freeze tubes flying empty, but we've been compensated for it. That seemed like a weird stipulation, but private charters were rare, so who knew? I hadn't even been signed to a ship before that was running under one. I must have raised my eyebrows or something, because she quickly pressed on. So, as I said, we lost our gunner. The contract calls for an experienced SDS in place, so we need someone new immediately. This Barlow seems to be having some political issues, so, the charter aside, I want someone at the trigger for safety's sake alone. A rollerbot with a carafe of coffee came to the table just then, giving us all a few moments of likely welcome distraction. As it was the real thing, instead of the fake powdered stuff I usually lived on, I accepted a cup gratefully and tried not to look ecstatic as I sipped. The defensive specs of registered commercial vessels are net accessible to licensed gunners, I informed them after a moment. Again, I'll do my homework when we're done here, but can you give me an idea of what kind of equipment I'd be in charge of? Sure, Carmi replied with a smile. To start, we're running with some aftermarket armor foam over the basic polinium carapace. Lapsic hardcoat, perhaps, I interrupted. No, she responded a bit sheepishly. It's a product we picked up in barter out in corporate space. Plastron? Something like that. That's a spray-on armor, right? Yeah, I've read about that stuff. Good or bad, she asked. We've never been shot at, so I can't talk with authority. I hedged visibly because I didn't want to out-and-out criticize the ship, but I wanted them to know that I'd speak plainly. Well, neutral, I guess. Plastron meets the basic requirements for that kind of armor, but I've heard some anecdotes from the field that have been somewhat less than ideal. Explosive reactivity to high-speed impact seems uneven, and there was one account of a resonance amplification issue from a maser attack, which is mm, disturbing. Ben Roggenston humphed in agreement, looking at Carmi in a way I couldn't read. 
Ailereta touched his ring a bit then, confirming that he was indeed listening closely and double-checking at least some of my statements on the net. That was sensible and efficient since they didn't have time to mess around, but his silence was starting to irritate me. On the other hand, I continued, hoping to sugar the lemon a bit, lab and independent tests for the whole Chelone line, uh, Plastron's the brand name, well, they've been quite good. I think they rate pretty high when it comes to insurance matters. If you specify the brand name on your policy instead of just the generic type, you can usually get a discount. This seemed to get their attention. Even Ailereta looked up for a moment, which felt like a triumph. That's good to know, the captain responded, seemingly pleased. We'll definitely look into the insurance aspect. Thank you. As for Griselda's weaponry, we have extensible Melkoch Mark II heavy lantern guns and twin Feldercorp light missile packs fore and aft. Those have been modified with 12-count cylinders instead of the usual eight. Twelves? On a root trader? Well, that's unusual. She nodded in agreement. In addition to eight standard rocket loads, we have four units of some specialized ordnance in each cylinder that we picked up a while ago. Impossible to replace an aim space, but good to have anyway, I think you'll agree. Assuming this works out, of course. Of course, I agreed. Then I hit them with the scary part. You reviewed my pay rate, I presume? I'm afraid that's non-negotiable. Desperate as I was, I couldn't afford to take a step back now. The industry was stagnant just then, and if I started signing lesser contracts, I'd get a rep for that. Employers were able to add their own comments to employee public profiles, and getting something that hurt my future negotiating strength would be a problem that could chase me for years. It seems fine, she replied, letting me sigh inwardly with relief, though the engineer frowned. As a policy, though, we don't carry dockside med insurance. If you need medical help, you get seen to aboard the ship or you pay for it yourself. I imagine your union covers you for emergencies, though? Yeah, that's no problem. My dues are current. Good, she said, then thought a bit. Let's see. Hmm. Ah, the crew all have separate cabins on Griselda. No barracks, no double bunks. Your berth would be tiny, but private. Well, now, that's attractive, I replied sincerely. I'm used to communal bunking, but I can't say I like it. Um, now on a different note. Just what kind of political issues are we talking about on Barlow? They sort of looked at each other for what I took to be support, but the answer was banal. Only what we're seeing in the news. Seems like some sort of radical neo-socialism is starting to take root. It's just a single government on planet. The current system is a democratic one, I think. They have a president anyway, for what it's worth. Looks like there are corporate influences in the government, but that's true everywhere. She shrugged. I don't know, really. The high dock in orbit is quiet by all accounts, but none of us have ever been to Barlow before. You? No, I've heard the name, but that's about all. Can I ask about the crews, the nature of the charter, perhaps? Sorry, no details until you're signed aboard. That's a clause in the charter, and it's Griselda SOP anyway. They could keep confidences, then. That was a good sign. What would be my contract duration? Well, we normally insist on a six-month commitment, subjective time. Considering our deadline, though, that's on the table. We'll sign you for this charter only, if that's all you can see your way to. No, no, six months is fine, I replied, trying to hide my excitement. I'd like a steady position, if I can find one. Good. Would you tell us about your previous work, then, Mr. DeSantos? So, I launched into the usual mix of bull and bravado. 
I did my best not to seem like a drifter, but long-term gigs were always hard to come by. Big corporate freighters are usually the soul of job security, but between my poor luck and sometimes worse attitude, if I'm going to be honest, there was a fair amount of downtime in my job history. I generally used it as best I could to get a fairly wide spectrum of industry-recognized degrees and certifications, so I spun all that unemployment as periods of continuing education. I smiled a lot, too. The engineer squinted in concentration at my resume while I spoke, but finally injected a question when I took a breath. You have actually seen combat, ja? Pirates? Yes, that's right. Real tool system two years ago. Pirates of a sort, anyway. Merc-sponsored, as it turned out. Missiles exchanged. The official reports are all open. I have the uh, AIN file key listed there under past employment. It's in the public record now, I think. Any private charter work before? The captain asked. You'll have to second up on steward duties. I see you have the certification for passenger service, but what about actual hands-on? Dispensing drinks and snacks before and after freeze tube transits is quite a bit different from serving waking passengers for weeks at a time. Duties aboard Griselda include laundry service and frozen meal prep for both passengers and crew, plus general gopher status. I nodded when she was done and said, I spent six months subjective on the Starliner Gower Bell about five years ago now. I performed steward duties almost exclusively. We had the class and Sandov route. Lots of traffic, no trouble. They had to have a gunner by law, but they sure never needed one. Rich clientele, too. Haley Gardette was a passenger once. The singer? Really? Oh, I've always loved her voice. What was she like? Well, she had an entourage that took care of her mostly. I only spoke with her once. Got her some tea, as I recall. Seemed nice. I shrugged and smiled. The captain smiled back. We're chit-chatting, I said at last. Yes, I guess we are. Give us a chance to talk this over. Say, an hour? I stood up. I'll wait for your call, I said, shaking hands. And then I was on my way back down to my room cube. The moment I was back, I did a search on Griselda in all the public records and on all the professional listings I had the certification to access. The ship had, indeed, docked only three days before and had no outstanding fines or charges against it that I could see. A quick look at the current AIN prescribed space vehicle listings didn't have a ship by that name or any other vessel of that class, so it wasn't stolen, had to be sure. A final cross-check through my union's ship analysis service, though, flagged Griselda as a Code 17. Based on my rough translation of the financialese, this indicated a few late payments to the ship's build bond with the current set of owners. So it was money troubles. Well, nothing unusual there. Even big corporate-owned ships usually had a history of slow or broken payment strings, if for no better reason than company policies. But Griselda was privately owned, and experience had taught me that, with a ship pulling scant profits, desperate choices could follow behind like hungry dogs. Six months could be a long, risky time on a ship with an eye toward the bill collector. Still, they were in the middle of a contracted run, and that meant things would be okay for at least a little while. I hemmed and hawed to myself for a few minutes, mostly to maintain the delusion of control, I guess. The choice wasn't hard, though. Deep debts or no, Griselda was the only game in town. 
An hour to the minute, Captain Maynard called to offer me the job, and I accepted with what was probably obvious gratitude. With my underwear clean and dry, I had no more business on Oasis. I checked out of my room cube, submitted to a too-friendly bag search and pat-down by the customs cops, then hit my locker rental up on the docks to retrieve a roller case that contained what amounted to pretty much all my worldly possessions. Everywhere I looked, I had pop-up adverts appearing before me, as well as safety notices, sale updates, traffic directions, and much more. The display receptor implants in my corneas augmented the normal information of the environment, overlaying my path and all else with real-time adjunctive data. If I was actually interested in buying any more crap on this station, I could have called up mini vid windows or other applications to superimpose themselves on my point of view. The risk comp acted as input, gateway, and processor all in one, allowing for on-the-fly purchasing or direct interaction with network-based interests, commercial or otherwise. I could access these apps or any stored data through head and hand gestures, voice input, subjective eye focus, or even direct physical use of the risk comp's tiny keyboard and mini pop-up hollow display. Yep, I could have stopped and played the good little consumer if I had the money and inclination. But I surely didn't. Oasis was fairly vibrant, a place lots of people called home, but shabby too, and now clearly violent according to the news, so I was happy to show up my backside. I had to take a passing streetcar to Griselda's berth as it was nearly four kilometers away counterclock, but I didn't mind that fee. It was the last thing I hoped to spend money on in the place, and that almost made it pleasurable. When I came to the numbered berth I'd been given, I signaled for a stop, then jumped off. The cargo and personnel lifts for Griselda were clearly marked, with the ship's abstract cat logo displayed prominently over them both on big signs in bright digital colors. There was a tall, stoutish woman wearing a safety helmet and the Griselda cat on her stylish pink jumpsuit. Though she didn't have a model's figure exactly, her clothes looked crisp and elegant, like something out of a Spacer Supply catalog. She was at the cargo lift, unloading a pallet of mixed stuff with a rental drive jack. She saw me watching, I guess, because she stopped and waved. You the new gunner? She had a surprisingly soft, high voice, considering she was bigger than me all over. She looked to be in her mid-thirties or so, had auburn hair that peeked out in short curls from under her matching pink helmet, and pale, pale skin, highlighted along the cheeks and chin with freckles. She had large brown eyes that were bloodshot and ringed darkly, and there were sad frowns at the corners of her mouth. Her smile seemed genuine, but it looked like it had been a while since the last one. That's me, Ejak de Santos. Nice to meet you. Need a hand? No, thanks. This is it. The containers are all in now. I'm only filling space with a loose load we just snagged. I'm Cassandra Hellburn, but call me Candy. Um, cargo chief. <laughs> Actually, do me a favor and return this jack to the lock bar over there. This is the last load, and I need to verify the manifest. You can ride up to the hold with me, and I'll show you your locker aboard. I felt like a knucklehead because the drive jack didn't seem to want to fit under the lock bar, and I fought with it long enough for the big woman to finish her digital paperwork and come over and see how useless the new guy was. Here, let me. There's a trick to it, she said taking the jack in hand and guiding it out, and then in again in a quick, smooth movement, Candy clicked it into place. She verified on the lock bar's display that a receipt for the rental had been posted to the ship's account, ticked it off on her own data pad, and then smiled shyly. Takes practice. 
She double-checked that the receipt had gone through to the ship's account, then double-checked her strap-downs and all the pallets, crates, and drums in the lift. I was able to help there anyway without wasting time since all the ties were perfect. She keyed the lift gate down, and then up we went on the elevator itself, losing weight by the meter. She held her helmet on with one hand while gripping a railing to keep in place. I bounced up in the reduced, then zero gravity, but this part wasn't new, and I was able to keep both myself and my case close to the floor. When we reached the station hub, just a ring of anchor clamps for cargo vessels of small to medium size, a chintzy port structure for a chintzy station, Candy floated down the wide, accordion-style load tube that led to Griselda's cargo hold. The pallet was set into a track on the deck and followed along automatically. I have room in the back for this stuff, she muttered to me, as if I needed to know. But I smiled and nodded, following the pallet, my hard case and flight bag floating along with me. When we reached Griselda proper, Candy stepped across the open hatch and landed easily on her feet. We're at one quarter G down here in cargo well berthed, so watch your step. I did, but I still tripped when the case hit the artificial gravity field and clunked lightly to the floor. She steadied me with one hand, and I smiled in gratitude and embarrassment. I'd done this countless times before, including the stumble, so I didn't feel too badly. First impressions were never my strong suit. A young woman, short and lean in direct contrast to Candy's size and dark in contrast to her color, was on the other side of the spacious hold, double-checking tie-downs on a roller rack of what looked like machine parts. She also wore the pink suit, and it looked for the moment like that might have been the standard uniform, though the offs at the interview had all worn different things. That's Rena, Candy explained quietly like it was a secret. She's the other steward aboard? She doubles down here helping me. She'll show you the ropes. Rena, she then called. This is Ejok, the replacement gunner. Can you get his case stowed away for him, then take him up to Dell so he can get his paperwork straightened out? After that, please come back down. I'll need some help with the stuff I just brought up. It's the last of it. Rena waved me over and introduced herself with a mumble so low that I wouldn't have caught any of it if I hadn't already heard what her first name was. Her pink helmet covered a black buzz cut and angular face and she had the same rimmed sadness around her dark eyes as if that, too, was part of the uniform. Maybe more so, in fact, because it was plain she'd been weeping silently when the cargo chief had called to her. She wiped away her tears none too carefully before leading me over to a bank of lockers near a short lift set into the bulkhead. There was a little door marked with the name B. Ham that was open and empty, though a plastic crate next to it was filled with an assortment of clothes and personal items. I'll get your name on it soon as I can. That's okay, no rush. Did the last guy leave all his stuff? She looked at me with real pain and hardness, and I saw that I'd stumbled again, though I wasn't sure just how. I decided to leave my foot in my mouth for a while to avoid any other landmines. I'd been signed to many civilian-class vessels in my career up to that point. The hello-how-are-you personal property stowage ritual was nearly always the same, and it was no different this time. Yet it was. I just put my case away, entered a new code on the locker's tiny keypad, and shut up. Rena waved me to follow her, and we took the lift up one level to Griselda's main companionway, where we were at a full G. 
A tall man of middle years with thinning brown hair and, yes again, sad eyes, was walking past the lift with a memory core and associated cables in his hand. He wore dark pants and a tan shirt, implying at last that there was no particular uniform aboard, which I rather preferred. Who's this? he asked easily. Sorry, what was your name again? Rena asked me. Ejoc de Santos, ship defense, pleased to meet you. Ah, he said with a wry nod. Ira Hellburn, comp and communications. You might have met my wife already, Candy. Yeah, she brought me aboard. I think I embarrassed myself trying to lend a hand down at the loading dock, but she was nice about it. Oh, I'm sure she appreciated it. Good to have you aboard, Ejoc. Thanks, but he was already walking off. We went the way he'd come and stopped by an open hatchway marked Delman Folks, legal specialist, in the same plain block font as the lockers. For that matter, all the doors were marked, as were all the access panels, maintenance closets, and all the important, as well as relatively unimportant, systems controls. I saw a light switch as we walked down the companionway marked, apparently without irony, light switch. Folks was sitting at a low desk interface engrossed in forms, both digital and hard copy. He had intelligent features under manicured, sandy hair and steel-gray eyes that flicked up to us as we stepped in. Ah, oh, the new recruit. Mr. DeSantos, is it? Pleasure to make your acquaintance. He offered a firm grip and gave me a quick, tight, but apparently sincere smile. He had the oddest English accent I'd ever heard, drawing out his A's and flattening his R's to the point that I initially thought he had a speech impediment. I thanked Rena, and she almost smiled, though not really, and left without saying a word. I'm afraid we have about two hours worth of forms to fill out, folks said with mock grimness, so you and I had best be comfortable. Can I get you something? Um, coffee, please? Powdered's fine. Black? Right. Back in a jiff. No, actually, follow me and I'll show you the galley. You'll be spending time there, after all. We passed through a wide intersection with plainly marked signs at the corners pointing toward engineering, the bridge, a common room, and a section marked employees only, which I took to be crew quarters. Folks saw me looking at all the signs and smiled. Candy's in charge of those. She likes to be thorough. Thorough is good, I replied, and the other man nodded. We're just short of six hours until launch, he then mentioned as we walked. Plenty of time to get the legalities out of the way. With passengers aboard, I'm afraid you'll have to hit the deck running, Mr. DeSantos. Ejac, please. Uh, no problem with that. Hopefully I'll also have a chance to get familiar with the defensive systems, at least before we actually make Star Jump. Of course. I believe Kami intends to go over all that with you before we even launch security codes and such. We were at the galley by this point. Closed and locked, but properly labeled, of course, and folks swiped us in with a ring key on his finger. It was fairly spacious as such things went, deep and wide enough for two to pass without getting in each other's way. It could have been a full-service kitchen had they wanted it to be, but it wasn't geared up for much more than basic prefab meal prep. It needed a good cleaning, my job now, but the powdered coffee seemed safe and the mugs, which bore the ubiquitous cat logo, were generous. Our passengers are back aboard as of last shift, newsvid crew out of Tyree, traveling to cover the Barlow unrest. He stirred in the coffee for me while he spoke and then handed it over. It was bland and bitter, just like it should be, just like it always was, a thing to count on in a moving galaxy. 
They stayed at a hotel on station while we've been docked. A party crowd given the opportunity, benders every night while here, I think. Reboarded Griselda last shift with new clothes all round, new luggage and souvenirs, and some rather severe hangovers. Still sleeping it off, I dare say. Had seventeen days with them already, with fifteen more to go, subjective. At Barlow, it's ten days in orbital dock while they complete their work on the planet. Then we get to do the whole thing over again in reverse. As passengers go, though, they've been friendly and easy to please. Well, I'll drink to that, I replied, and lifted my mug. He followed suit with his tea, and we returned to his office. The legal, insurance-related, and ship-specific forms and notices were tedious, but only because we had to get through them all before the ship departed. Without such a tight deadline, this sort of thing would normally have been spread out over several days, allowing Oasis bureaucrats to get back to Griselda with whatever yays or nays such people have the power to decree. Folks told me he'd send off my forms during the ship's countdown and they could stuff any nays at that point. During that intensive red tape dump, Folks came across as a man who knew his stuff inside and out, including what was important to the powers that be and what was merely formality. He also seemed to appreciate levity without ever really being witty himself. He took two calls from the dockmaster's office while we worked concerning some picayune details about their cargo load, and one from Carmi about me, I think. He seemed competent, businesslike, and quiet, but not at all uptight. A total mystery, in other words. After the paperwork, he excused himself from the nickel tour, citing a pile of customs verifications that he needed to cross-check with Oasis Mercantile Library before we left. As a world with an agricultural-based economy, he told me, Barlow was primarily known for the production of high-quality hydrocarbon analogs from a massive chemergy industry that worked hand-in-hand with the farms. The offs took a chance on Barlow and invested in computer tech and machine parts, hoping to score some refined agrochem products in trade. Compostable ballistics-grade plastics, for instance, were high on the wish list, since a return trip to Tyree with a hold full of that stuff would fetch a tidy profit indeed. There were some other things, too, but I didn't really pay attention. He might have picked up on that because he called Carmi eventually to say we were done. She told him to send me forward to the bridge, so I thanked folks for his time, then followed his simple directions. The command compartment was to the fore and up a small flight of steps that terminated in a large emergency iris valve swing door combination that looked like it could keep the bridge crew reasonably safe in almost any situation. It was currently, and usually I learned later, open. It had something of a non-standard layout, with all stations, including the captains, sitting side by side. Each display desk was more involved and complex than folks, but not dissimilar in layout. These were the duty stations for Carmi, Aloreda, Ira, and a slim blonde woman in her early 30s. Ira was currently on the floor, with a mess of cables and a memory core, this one of a different make than the one I'd seen him with earlier. The cables ran from under a particular display desk into an open access panel in the floor. The woman I hadn't yet met sat at a station marked, by the ever-diligent candy, no doubt, Navigation. She had tightly bunned hair, set features, and strangely impassive eyes that she cast at me when I walked in before returning to her board. I'm not yelling, Ira. I just don't understand what was wrong with the old backup core, Carmi was saying, a touch of testiness in her voice. We're down to the wire here. A 0.4% block failure is not trivial, Carmi, he replied easily as if he'd had similar conversations before and knew how they all turned out. 
Yes, it was working fine, but my choice was to either change it now as an option or change it later as an emergency. This new one has a different cable layout, but it's not a big deal. It's already up and running with the old backups file environment cloned in. I'm just looking to see if we can do without some of these extra lines. It's a bit of a mess at the moment, but I'll have it cleaned up before launch. Comp is ready. Okay, fine, she conceded, sighing. Then she noticed me and rose. Ah, Mr. DeSantos, all set with Dell? Call me Ejok. Yeah, but he had some more work to do before launch, so he sent me on alone. Are one of these stations gunnery? She joined me at the door, but turned back to the room. No, gunnery was an afterthought on this class of ship, I'm afraid. The Pelican was originally designed for flexibility, with every system interchangeable. Though we've assigned regular duty stations, in a pinch any of them can be called up and utilized from almost any display in the ship. God, I hate those things, I said without thinking. It's come in handy a few times, actually, Ailerata put in, revealing his voice to be high and tight. He'd been watching us, and his tone was schooling. Oh, oh, sorry. No problem, Carmi assured me. The previous owners must have hated them, too, because they remodeled one of the maintenance closets amidships into a dedicated gunnery station. None of the equipment in it is designed for use with the ship's installed control software, though. It has lots of interface issues because of that. Our last gunner felt more confident of the original fire control software than he did of that station itself. Really? Can I get a chance to work with it before we leave? I might be able to pull it fully online if I have access to my union's local resources. Well, we leave in three hours, and we're not budgeted for any upgrades. You may not need any. And if you do, it might actually be quite cheap. Interface problems can sometimes be as simple as giving ship systems and gunnery a place to sit and chat, so to speak. It's called a con pipe. It's the size of my thumb, and it costs almost nothing. It gets wired to one of the inputs at the gunnery station. We then run some brand-specific dialogue software that installs there, interfacing all the systems that need to work with fire control. I can download the software for free from my union's library so long as we're still in system. Debugging it can be tedious work, but it's quite doable and, if I can say, inexpensive. I built a gunnery station from the deck up once. I can't imagine this would be harder than that. You haven't even seen any of the hardware yet. I smiled simply and tried not to sound cocky. I'll bet I have. Carmi's dark eyes showed puzzlement. The others were watching with similar faces. Okay, um, this way then. We stepped back down the companionway and stopped at a nondescript door, not a real pressurized hatch, mind, marked simply storage. She nodded her head at the sign and remarked, We don't want to make paying passengers nervous. If they knew this to be gunnery, they'd get jittery every time someone went inside. She waved her ring key over the door's input pad, saying, We'll get you set up with your own codes as soon as we're done here. Alliance law states we have to talk about Griselda's combat protocol, so we'll set up a time after we're underway for that. We follow standard AIM guidelines for civilian-class transports in most respects, but Pelicans have a few details you need to know about. She had opened the door and was talking as I studied the contents. She hadn't been kidding when she called it a former closet, former broom closet to be accurate, about 1.5 meters in depth and maybe 2 meters in length. Tactical displays of a familiar style and layout perched atop a homemade desk set inside an old slop sink, plumbing fixtures capped off, thankfully. 
They were all so close-fitting, it was obvious they'd been assembled inside this place. Carmi pulled back a small ergonomic seat, which was attached to a makeshift track, and motioned for me to take a look. This was definitely a home-cooked system, with different kinds and brands of operating and tracking equipment that were never designed to work together. There were also some redundancies I couldn't account for at first. As I had suspected, there wasn't any equipment here I hadn't seen before, but I'd never seen or heard of a setup like this. So, she asked after a full minute of me poking around the displays and interface devices. Get me set up with those codes and I'll play with this stuff for a few minutes. A conpipe looks like a good candidate here. You know, these systems shouldn't be able to work without a hardware interface. There must be some serious software hoodoo going on just to make them dialogue with each other at all, let alone with the rest of the ship. Yeah, Ben spent many weeks coding and patching. He hated it, I think. Ben? Our former gunner. He died here on Oasis two days ago. We're still shaken up over it. I didn't know. I, I'm so sorry. Was it sudden? Sudden and violent, she replied with a hard set to her mouth. He was in a bar when a gunfight broke out. Wrong place, wrong time. He got hit with a stray shot. Several others died there as well. Oh, man. Yeah, I heard about that. They haven't caught anybody yet, have they? Not that I know of. Looks like a gang thing or some kind of illegal deal that went bad. I wish we could stay to see some justice done, but we just don't have that option. Look, Ejok, I'm not going to mince words. Bennett Ham was like family. It's a small crew. We're very close. You're here because we need a new gunner, and you're stepping into a big shadow. It might be uncomfortable for a while. Understood. Ben was probably a great defense special, but I'm not him. If I think I can improve things, I want to try. If this system, as it stands, is unreliable, then it's really just so much junk. I think I can fix what's wrong. Ben maybe never knew how. I'm not knocking the guy, that's just how it is. I don't want to add any to your grief, honestly, but I do want to do my job. This is only part of your job. Again, understood, but if you want to go to that, the galley needs a good scrub down, which I intend to tackle as soon as possible. Looks like it's been a while. Her face started to cloud over, so I rushed on. It's just a bad situation. You folks lost your man. You have a contract to meet, and time is short. I'll do everything I can to fit in here, but please don't fault me for wanting to work hard. I don't. But don't fault us for wishing that Ben was still here instead of you. It's not personal. I just nodded. So, do I have your go-ahead to work on this? If I can at least bring up tactical and do a diagnostic, I can let that run while I dash to the supply house. It's on this level of the station, but I'll need a half hour or so. And I'll tell you what, I added, because I'm the big wheeler dealer. I'll do the purchase out of pocket. If you don't see any results you like... I'll eat the cost. She seemed opposed to it on principle alone, as if allowing me to do this violated some unwritten familial contract with Bennett Ham's ghost. But she nodded tightly anyway and fished out a key stick from a sleeve pocket. She handed it to me and walked off. I knew I'd like her then. Not because she let me have my way, but because she could feel loss and grief and uncertainty over a new element and yet still do the right thing for the ship. Mind our launch time, Ejok, she called over her shoulder. If we have to hold for you, I'm going to be really, really, really pissed.
have been listening to Street Candles, written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com or drop me an email at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called Icor by Trunks and can be found on soundcloud.com. The Street Candles theme is called Undercover by Karsten Holy Moly and can be found on dig.ccmixter.org. This production is otherwise copyright 2013 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Street Candles is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead or any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care. (laughs) 